We are working through the book of Philippians, and we've been doing this for two weeks now. This is our third sermon, uh, and I'm calling this sermon a fries or salad decision. Now, have any of you guys seen the documentary Supersize Me? Yes? Can I see some hands? Yes? Perfect. So lots of you know what I'm talking about. So if you haven't, it's a documentary about this guy who decides that he's going to eat McDonald's for every meal for a month just to see what it does to his body. It's a really interesting documentary. Now, he has this rule that he imposes on himself, which is that if the cashier asks him, would you like your meal supersized, he has to say yes. And that means, you know, turn a medium fries and medium pop into a large fries or large pop or soda if you're American. Now, I have a similar rule, only my rule is about fries at a restaurant. And I can't remember exactly when, but I decided that at one point, if a server asks me, would you like fries or salad with that, I have to respond by saying salad. Now, this is not because I prefer salad. In fact, I much prefer fries. I love fries. Now, when Carrie and I were in Amsterdam a couple of summers ago, we fell in love with these Belgian fry shops. Have any of you guys been there, seen them? These big paper cones full of fries and like a huge pile of mayo on top. Really good for you. Anyway, so one night we were out for dinner and we decided that we would, after dinner, ride and go have some dessert. So we rode our bikes over to Ben and Jerry's and we had some Ben and Jerry's ice cream. There I am, eating my Ben and Jerry's, yeah. And then after Ben and Jerry's, we thought, well, why not dessert number two? Let's go to the Belgian fry shop down the road. So that's exactly what we did, some more fries after the ice cream. So you can, you can see I would naturally choose fries over salad any day, and you can probably see also why I need to choose salad over fries as well. Now, before you start thinking, wow, Mike, what a bold and courageous decision you've made for your health, um, you have to know that if the server doesn't ask me would you like fries or salad? I can eat fries. That's fine. Okay. Perhaps someday I will actually choose salad instead of fries, but that day has not yet come. Now, before I get entirely sidetracked in talking about fries, I better tell you what this has to do with Philippians. Now, I think it gets to the heart, in some way, of what Paul is talking about in this text this morning. Not every decision, not every choice comes down to preference. Not every choice comes down to preference. While in an ideal world, when you're given the choice between two things, you're going to go with the one that you prefer, naturally. But that's not always the way it works. Sometimes we, we choose or we have to choose voluntarily or involuntarily the choice that we don't prefer. In our text this morning, Paul is faced with a choice, a choice that's far more significant than would you like fries or salad with that. It's the choice between life or death. Now, as you know or might not know from the last couple of sermons, Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And prison wasn't exactly a pleasant place in the ancient world. He was entirely reliant on the Christian community for meeting his basic needs, needs for food, for water, for comfort, for companionship. But throughout the letter so far, there's been a real tone of joy to this letter. Despite his circumstances, and maybe even because of his circumstances, he's convinced that the gospel is advancing. Those in the Imperial Guard are hearing the gospel. Other prisoners are hearing the gospel. His fellow Christians are being strengthened and made more confident in the gospel because of his imprisonment. But Paul knows that this imprisonment is ultimately going to end in a trial. A trial that could potentially take his life from him. So in this section, this short little section that we have, he takes up the question of life or death. Specifically, what would you do? What would I do? What would Paul do given the choice between the two of them? Now, for Paul, this is a fries or salad kind of a decision. In other words, it's not as simple as just choosing the one that he prefers. 
In fact, Paul's reasoning in this section of the letter is really quite strange, I think. I mean, think about it. If someone walked up to you and gave you the choice between life or death, I would bet, in fact, I pretty much guarantee that most of us would choose life instead of death. We would prefer life instead of death. And following that, I think most of us, our choice would follow our preference. Not only would we prefer life, but we would, in fact, choose it. But strangely, Paul's reasoning doesn't run along this same line in this section. Paul would not only prefer death over life, going against the general consensus, but when it actually comes down to it, he's going to choose that which he doesn't prefer. It's strange, right? Now, what does this reasoning of a man in prison 2,000 years ago have to do with us now, 21st century, and pretty much, well, I guess all of us in this room, not currently in prison? Well, I'd argue that Paul's reasoning ought to be our normal way of thinking about our, our existence, our normal way of thinking about life and death. Let me say that again. Paul's reasoning, his preference for death, but his choice for life, ought to be our normal way of thinking about our existence. So I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to look at why it is that we should prefer death over life. Second, I want to look at why, despite our preference for death, we should choose life. And third, I want to look at how that sort of posture, a preference for death but a choice for life, is even possible. So I'll say that again. First, I want to look at why we should prefer death. Second, why we should, in fact, choose life. And third, how that sort of posture is even possible. So the first point, a preference for death. This is one of the most startling things about this passage, is that Paul is so adamant about death being the better option. Look at verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's what he says. I mean, really, Paul? Is that actually the better choice? Let's put aside the question of the afterlife for just a second, and let's talk about the process of dying. It's not a pleasant thing most of the time. I don't know how many of you have had loved ones or friends die, but it's, it's often a really horrible thing to watch. We love movie endings, movies like The Notebook, where this lovely old couple here, um, she has Alzheimer's, he does not. They end up passing away in their sleep one night in a single bed in her home. It's a beautiful ending of the movie, but it's not the normal way that our lives come to an end. It's our hope, sure. We want to be surrounded by our loved ones. We want to be at home. We want to pass away quietly in our sleep followed soon afterwards by our wife or our husband. I mean, that's my dream for it, but that's not usually the way it works. Those that I've known that have died have died painful deaths, slow deaths, colon cancer, leukemia, brain cancer. It's ugly. It's painful. Not only for those who die, but also for those who are left behind. And the death Paul's contemplating here isn't any nicer. In fact, it might even be worse. He's talking about execution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Execution for being a traitor, refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And although in the end we don't actually know how it ended for Paul, Christian tradition holds that he was in fact executed. That is how it ended. So faced with the prospect of death, it's no surprise that the majority of us would choose to keep on living. I mean, that would be our choice, wouldn't it? Death is a nasty thing. It's something we try to avoid at all costs. Now, beyond the pain of death and dying itself, there's also the question of the afterlife. And for those in our culture, for those in this room who are not Christians, this life is it. It's the only one you've got. So if you're faced with the choice between life or death, of course you're going to choose life. 
I mean, it's simple. Don't be stupid, obviously. And even for those who are followers of Jesus, I think if we're forced to admit it, the decision is only a little bit more complicated. I mean, life is pretty good most of the time. I want to grow old with Carrie. I want to see Ethan grow up. I want to see him take his first steps, go to his first day of school, go on his first date, graduate high school, graduate college, get married, have kids. And I want to be there through all of that. There's things I want to do. There's places I want to go. There's stuff with bacon in it that I want to eat. Right? More fries, probably. And these are good things. I mean, they're part of God's good creation. They're part of his people exercising their creativity. Creativity that he gave them. It's a healthy thing to enjoy life. It's healthy to enjoy walks in the mountains. Healthy to enjoy our kids and our spouses. A good meal, a wonderful bottle of wine. These are great things. Gifts. And I think one of the good things that's happened, I think, in theology over the past few decades has been kind of a re-emphasis on the goodness of creation. That God doesn't intend to just wipe out the earth and start again when we all fly off to heaven. That quote from N.T. Wright at the beginning was so great for that. God intends to renew all things. And Christians are remembering, again, I think, that it's okay to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in this place now. But we can go too far with that as well. And although the shift in theology towards the goodness of creation is a really positive shift, it can quickly lead us to forget that this life now, here, this stuff, is not the ultimate promise. The ultimate promise is resurrection from the dead, new bodies, a new heaven, a new earth, where we'll dwell with Christ forever. So if we know this as Christians, why do we so easily fall into patterns of thinking that this is it? And you know you do. And I think one of the ways that this plays out is that we get this kind of incessant desire to take in everything that we possibly can. Because I only live once, right? At the end of my life, I don't want to be regretting that I didn't do that or see this or eat that or drink that or whatever it might be. And of course, not everything that we live for is a bad thing in and of itself. Some of this stuff is really good. But ultimately, what we're talking about here is preference. Would you prefer life or would you prefer death? And I don't think I'd be alone in saying that if I'm really honest with myself, I think I prefer life. And following that, I think most of the time, my life is oriented around that very preference. The promise of life looms much larger in my thinking than the promise of death. And what Paul so radically illustrates in this passage is that the opposite should be true for followers of Jesus. Our lives ought to be oriented around not the promise of this life, but the promise of life after death. And that's just not my normal way of operating in the world. I don't live life holding on tightly to the promise of life after death. I hold on living tightly to the promise of this life, the promise of life now. And while that certainly corrects a sort of escapist mentality that we're all just going to fly off and who cares what we do now, it also minimizes that ultimate hope. It minimizes for followers of Jesus, what is that ultimate hope? That God is going to make all things new, including our bodies, these things, which, although wonderful and miraculous, are haunted by death and decay and illness. In fact, I think the only people that usually live with this sort of orientation are people who, who struggle with chronic illness, whether mental or physical. Those for whom life is so hard that the only way they can get through it is by focusing on the promise that it won't always be this way. 
It won't always be this painful. It won't always be this degrading. But this is exactly the sort of orientation that Jesus wants us to live by, that he calls us to live by. We're to be a people of the resurrection, a people whose primary and, in fact, only hope is that on that great and glorious day that God is going to make all things new, that the present creation, our present bodies, our present relationships are but a shadow of that which is to come, that which is promised for those who are in Christ. Now, I really like to work at Tim Hortons on Granville Street. Granville and Nelson has a lovely upstairs section if you've never been there. Don't go because you'll take my seat. Um, the other day I was sitting there writing this sermon and this song came on, which was so perfect. It was called uh, Live Like We're Dying. It was by Chris Allen. I looked it up afterwards. I'd never heard it before, but when I Googled Live Like We're Dying, all these songs came up. Songs by country singers, obviously, and by lots of other people. Live Like We're Dying, Live Like You Were Dying. I mean, it seems to be a common theme. But what runs through them all is kind of a certain mentality about this. And it is, we ought to live this life now to the full because it's the only one you get. That's the mentality. You know, carpe diem, seize the day, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, that sort of thing. But this isn't what I'm talking about. This isn't what Paul is talking about. Living with an orientation towards death is also, in a sense, to live like you're dying, really. But the way it plays out is entirely different. It's not to live as though this day is my last. It's to live as though this day is my first. Because what's to come is infinitely better than what I know now. To die means to depart and to be with Christ. And Paul knows that this is the better thing. But do we? Do I know that? Do I actually believe that? The New Testament talks about Jesus as the pearl of great price, worth selling all that you have in order to get it. So, of course, there's no greater gain than to die and be united with Christ. And look at what Paul's going to say later in the chapter, and later in the letter in chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is our hope. I mean, this is the goal to which our entire life should be oriented, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All right, so that's the first point. Death is always preferable to life, because it means being united with Christ. So if death really is preferable, why should we choose life? I think it's a logical question. Well, we have to look at what Paul says about this. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1, 21 to 26. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As you can see yet again, Paul's preference is for death, but he's convinced that life is the right decision. Life is what he will do. And don't think for a second that this is a simple choice for Paul. In the middle of verse 22, when Paul says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. The Greek gets messy, goes all over the place. This is clearly a man who's in distress. He knows that both of these options, both death, being with Christ, and both staying for the advance of the gospel, are great things. 
They're both really appealing options. So why does he know that in the end he's going to choose life rather than death? Well, it's not because of all that stuff we've already talked about, things like our spouses and children and, and friends and nature and food and drink and all these sorts of things. It's not even because he's trying to avoid the painfulness of death. Paul knows that he's going to choose life for two reasons. The first is that he says he wants to remain with the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith. And second, that they may have ample cause in him to glory in Christ Jesus. So he's going to choose life so that he can be with the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith and so that they may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus for their to glory in Christ Jesus. So death is better for Paul himself, but life is better when he considers his brothers and sisters. And this shouldn't be at all that surprising. I mean, Paul's ultimate concern through this whole letter so far has been the advance of the gospel. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then in verse 16, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And then 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's desire above all things, even above his desire to depart and to be with Christ, is to see the gospel go forward, to see people come to saving knowledge of Jesus, to see people come to know that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, of all of this, and that he died in order that we might be with him forever. Paul knows that that going forward, that message is far more important than him going to be with Christ. So when Paul determines that it's better for him to remain alive, it's solely out of his concern to see the gospel go forward. He wants to see the Philippians come to know Jesus in a way that's so deep that it results in joy, joy that overflows in them going out themselves and sharing the gospel with others. See, the progress of the gospel is never solely an individual thing, a personal sort of progress. As in, believe the gospel and you'll be a better person. That's not what this is about. Certainly the gospel has incredible power to amend our lives, to change our hearts and affections, to transform our behavior. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel is for us, but it always comes to us by way of and on its way to someone else. And that's precisely what Paul is so concerned with here. Although his desire is to depart and to be with Christ, he knows that he will remain, for it's better for the progress of the gospel. And, I mean, this leaves me asking a question that should leave you asking the same question. Is this what primarily drives your life as well? Our friends and our family's progress and joy in faith. Is that what's driving you? And we can try to dismiss this. We can say, oh, Paul was an apostle. I mean, that was his job. He had to do that. But my job doesn't really require that. That's not what I'm called to do. And I mean, certainly Paul was specifically called to this, but that doesn't mean that we're off the hook. It doesn't really matter what your job is, what you do to occupy your time. You're defining, one of the defining focuses of your life should be our brothers and our sisters' progress and joy in the faith. And even as a pastor, someone, this is supposed to be my job. This is really convicting stuff. I mean, it's, it's easier just to, to hang out, to ask easy questions, have a little bit of fun, than it is to start asking really hard questions of people. But what Paul is showing us here is that the faith of those around us, how they're doing, how they're really doing, ought to be one of the primary focuses of our lives. 
And the other focus, according to this, is that we should give them cause to boast about Jesus, to glorify Christ. Another way of saying that is that Paul wants the Philippians to have more reasons to boast about who Jesus is and how great he is. And this is a really unusual way of thinking about our lives as well. We often do things so that we can boast or we can have a great story to tell our friends. We do things, we say things, we make certain decisions in order that people would think we're special or we're smart or we're just better than they are. I remember being in, in grade nine, junior high, and I had just moved back from England recently, and I started playing badminton while I was in England. Um, and I was pretty short, you know, pretty out of shape kid. And um, but I loved badminton. And badminton tryouts were coming the next day. And I was practicing and stuff. My, my strings broke on my racket. So I said to my mom, can you go? It's a good Mother's Day story, I guess. Can you go and get my racket restrung while I'm at school today? And she did. She went out that next day. She went and got my racket restrung so she would give it to me in time for badminton trials. And that day I was telling everybody, oh, yeah, I was practicing last night. Strings broke. I was hitting it so hard. And... Uh, She's gone to restring it, and I'm going to you know, essentially do really well at these tryouts, and you better all be afraid. And everybody's like, oh, man, this kid's got to be good. I didn't make the team. I, don't, I think I was like a third alternate. It was really embarrassing. But, I mean, it, it kind of gives us a sense of what we do, right? We try to make ourselves look a little better. We tell a great story so that people will think better of us. It often ends in embarrassment, but not always. But what Paul is saying here is that we choose life not to make ourselves look better. We choose life in order to give opportunities to boast about who Jesus is. When Paul's going to make it out of prison and go back to be with the Philippians to, to encourage them in their faith, he knows that they're going to be ecstatic about that. And they're going to praise Jesus as a result of it. And if we're to take this seriously, it means that we make decisions not for the sake of making our own name great or of having people think more highly of us, we make decisions in order that they might glorify God and that people would think more highly of who Jesus is. And I don't know about you, but that's not a defining way of my operation in the world. I mean, that's just not the normal way that I operate, thinking that way. I think I would probably choose life over death because of my own enjoyment of my friends and my family, not for their progress and joy in the faith. I think I choose life over death because there's so much stuff that I want to do still. Not so that people would have more opportunities to glorify God, to boast about who Jesus is. Paul is not saying that our relationships and the stuff that we do doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters immensely. And Paul is ultimately going to choose life for the sake of those things. But for the sake of those things ordered correctly. Our relationships matter because they afford an opportunity to encourage and to walk alongside someone in their progress and joy in the gospel. And that's going to bring us pleasure too. But ultimately, our relationships are about that, encouraging one another. What we do with our time and our resources matters because it affords an opportunity for Christ to be glorified. These things are going to bring us pleasure too, of course. We ought never to do them for the sake of making our own name great. We do them so that others would boast about who Jesus is. All right, so finally, this all sounds pretty awesome. I mean, I think, it, I think it sounds pretty awesome. It's a vision for life that's far better than the way in which I normally operate. But it also sounds really, really hard. What I've been talking about so far probably means like a radical reorientation of the way in which you think about and operate in the world. 
And that's what it means for me. So how are we supposed to, to do that? I mean, it seems near impossible, an impossibly large task. And this brings us nicely to the final point. How is this kind of change to come about in our lives? Look at, look at the end of the section of Philippians. Or no, rather, let's look at the beginning of the section. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that his deliverance from prison, his ability to go on living and laboring for the gospel, hangs on the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit. <coughs> In other words, the sort of posture that he's presenting is not something that he is able to do on his own. As mysterious and kind of maybe even strange as it might sound, this is dependent on the prayers of the Philippians, them praying for him, for the help of the Spirit. And while this morning we're not talking about being delivered from prison or possible execution, I mean, at least not most of us, I think the same thing goes for us. For our lives to be transformed by this, by the radical message of the gospel, it requires the Spirit. This is not something we're going to do on our own. It also requires that we be prayed for by other people in the community, that we be praying for other people in the community. We need to be praying that they wouldn't lose sight of the fact that we're to live our lives now not for ourselves, but for the sake of Christ and his church. We need to be praying for one another that we might know progress and joy in the faith and that our lives might become a moment for someone else to boast about who Jesus is, not about us, about how great we are. We need to be committed to praying for one another, not just in times of sickness and in need, but regularly through the boring stuff through the progress and joy in the faith. And I mean, I'm not saying here that Paul couldn't be released without the prayers of the Philippians. I mean, of course he could. God can work through all sorts of things. But God delights to work through the prayers of his people. He delights in giving his children what they ask for. We need to be praying for one another that we might be able to say with Paul in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to hand over my entire life to Christ. To live is to recognize the fact that I've already died. So to die is to gain everything. To die means to be united with Christ, the one towards whom my whole life should have been oriented anyway. And as Paul knows, that's far better. So it's a fries or salad kind of decision. It's do we know that death is preferable, yet we continue to choose life? The question is this that I want you to leave with. Are we going to live our lives anticipating that day, anticipating our deaths, or attempting to avoid it? Are we going to live our lives not for the sake of this, the here and now, but for the sake of what is the ultimate promise, the promise that God is going to make all things new, including these bodies? And that means that I don't need to be anxious about this, what I do and what I don't do are missing out on an opportunity. My primary focus, then, is to be others, my brothers and sisters in Christ. 